please open your Bible to Matthew 5. We're going to read Matthew 5, verses 1 through 20. And when he saw the multitudes, he went up to, onto the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And opening his mouth, he began teaching them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you, saying all kinds of evil things against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. And so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled under the foot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men take nor do nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until it is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Please take a moment and reflect on God's word. For many of us in this room, remember the time when the wall went down in Eastern Europe. And we thought that as unprecedented days in world history. Yet at the same time, there was men and women that were looking at that and looking at that as a tremendous opportunity. Back in, those, in, back in 1989 and the years that follow, Dwight Smith and several others began to look at the Soviet bloc and begin to say, how does the church begin to expand in the Russian-speaking world? Dwight, is, Dwight Smith and his wife Patty have been doing this for about 45 years now. Recently, they've been doing it in the Ukraine, doing the same in India as well as in China, but looking for opportunities to expand God's kingdom in world evangelization through the, through the planting of churches. Dwight and Patty have been married for, for 46 years, and they have four children and 11 grandchildren, so we're grateful to have them with us here this morning. Dwight, let me pray for us. Great. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that your word is living and active. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear on how you see the world. Um, when you think of world evangelization, what is Christ's community's role in that? 
So, Father, thank you for the wisdom you will give us today. I pray for Dwight that you would give him wisdom as he speaks to us this morning. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Mark. Let me just add to that a little bit of thoughts to the Father. Father, as we come together, we would pray that you would anoint our time. You are the author of this book. You are the the sender of the Spirit into the world and into our hearts to instruct us about the truth. And now we have come this morning with all kinds of thoughts and minds and backgrounds swirling around us. We pray that you would push those all away and the light of your gospel and your truth would shine clearly into our hearts. Take the words that you want to speak And uh, for each heart, remind them of those words. May my words pale in comparison to your words. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we think about the chaos that swirls in the world, economically, politically, and socially, especially the suffering of people beyond comprehension, most of us as Americans have absolutely no concept of what it means to be people of poverty and oppression. And I I think probably I would say, I'm not asking you to feel guilty about that. Praise God you don't. But every once in a while, just remember the back of your head that there is evil that goes on in the social relationships of the world that you don't want to know about, but it's there, and you pray God's protection on his children in the midst of it. But as all that swirls in reality today, and a lot of it is inexplicable, uh, except that we know that evil is the root of this world. That's sitting at the very middle of uh, the machinations of man are uh, evil, evil in the heart, and Satan to uh, flame those into uh, red flame and to make things even uglier. But with that as a backdrop, I, I, would, I want to just start out this morning reminding you, maybe something you know or you don't know, that from a 30,000-foot level, there is no better day to be on this planet as a Christian. As a couple who have given almost a half a century of our life, not too far from it now, most of it globally, some of it in the U.S., I can say to you that I don't know why, but thank God that I'm alive today and I'm not alive 50 years ago or 100 years ago as an adult talking to you. Uh, Simply because we live in a day when more people have become followers of Christ in, I think, total numbers in the last 30 years than all of the followers of Jesus Christ of the last 2,000 years. As one who grew up, uh, grew, grew up on the question, how do you finish the task? As one who was constantly uh, related to and exposed to the world and what God was doing and in Africa and Latin America and Asia and what he was doing to begin to enumerate in our minds the lost people groups of the world. And one who looked at the nations and wondered, will things ever change? Will there be a moment of opportunity when all of these expectations and the word, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his power will finally come to the nations and there'll be that moment when we will say that there is no Nobody that is not within potential economic, uh, geographic access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And most of the generations that I have read about, that I've studied about, that I went out with in the early 70s would have said, well, I know that that's the promise, but it ain't happened in my day. 
But as I stand before you in the year 2014, that's no longer true. We live in an exceptional moment in human history when most of the promises that sent thousands of others from, from places where they live to places well beyond where they ever thought they would go, most of them, many of them, living short periods of time and dying as seeds of righteousness and gospel to be built on with other seeds of righteousness and gospel, that today we live in the harvest of all those seeds. I am sure that when Patty and I first went to Columbia, South America in 1973, most of the veteran missionaries that we served with would have expected that the grave is empty and something would have happened, but probably not in their lifetime. They could not have imagined the day we lived in. They wanted it. They prayed for it. They sacrificed for it. They gave their life to it. Many of them gave children to it, but they never saw it. They might not have been able to fully understand the day we have actually come to live in. I like to say that in the year, more or less, that I was born, 1948, God began a profound, radical transformation of Christianity in China. We know that 200 years of missionary activity in China up until about 1948, 1950, have produced about 4 million Christians, and 3 million of those were Catholics. At that moment, communism got its grip on the system. Many Christians were killed. Churches were closed. Seminaries were barred over. Missionaries were kicked out. A lot of people were killed. And communism had decided that this delusion called Christianity would be over in our country. But at the moment of greatest desperation for the sense of world missions, it was the moment of inception for God's miracle. Somewhere in the, in the mid to later 70s, when our then president, Richard Nixon, first went back into uh, China, idea, concepts and reports began to filter out that those 4 million had become 50 million. Today, as my wife and I go regularly back into China, and our daughter is a missionary, is a teacher, missionary teacher in Shanghai, China, she sits in the middle of a church of something close to 80 million Christians. And all that's in my lifetime. That God has, has done what he didn't do for others 200 years of. One, he only knows his sovereignty. He knows what he was doing. And they were seeds and we're harvesters. My wife and I first went to India in 1985. In 1985, we knew that 2,000 years of Christianity in India had produced about 25 million Christians and about 115 or so thousand churches. That was in the midst of a sea of 850 million people. In those days, God got a hold of many of the key leaders of that nation, and they started asking some significant questions. Is that, is that really the implication of the resurrection? Does an empty grave mean that the majority of Indians go to hell? Or does God want to do something profoundly different? And without telling you the whole story, today as we go, regularly go back into India, India is the single largest national church that the history of the church has ever seen. Something close to 150 million believers inside of India today and approaching 600,000 churches. With a younger generation that is coming along and saying, it's our turn to finish that task. 
we need another 600,000 churches. I like to jokingly say and think that if we go to heaven and the Lamb's banquet is in eternity today, it, I used to say it would be a Chinese buffet, but it, it will now be, it will now be a, an Indian curry. <laughs> the single largest church of, of Christian history is the Indian church in my lifetime. And as an educated missiologist, I am reminded of all the thousands of other missionaries who went and never saw even one convert. And I see millions. They never saw a church planted, and one of my disciples in India this last year alone planted 800 churches. In five years, I've seen 7,200 people become followers of Jesus Christ. Now, you could say, why? I'm not going to ask that question because that's God's business. But at a 30,000-foot level, there's no better day to be alive as a follower of Jesus Christ. But the American church doesn't live at the 30,000-foot level anymore at 2000, the year 2014. We have come across different struggles, and our, our future is framed in a little bit different realities the drag of postmodernism and the opiate effect of materialism have, re- have created in our own midst in this nation an unrestrained narcissism, me first, and an out-of-control hedonism. I want it, and I want it now. We have, I think, potentially become the most hedonistic and narcissistic nation that the world has ever seen. And that same cultural milieu in which you live, promoted at every level, but especially championed by uh, popular media in all of its forms, has its drag on American Christianity. To the degree today that no more than about 6 to 10% of the people in America actually go to church on Sunday. Now, you've got to put that in reference again, all right? You put it at the global scene, it's like, what's going on? <laughs> but if you put it in my life again, whereas I've experienced, been a part of experience, global evangelization all over this world, I've also lived in an American Christianity that has gone from 50 to 6 or 10 in my lifetime. And a majority of Christians still left in the church are trying to navigate a life that is an antithesis to the world because that's, what, that's the way God set up Christianity. The drag on Christianity of this hedonism and this narcissism that is pervasive in our society is the opposite of everything that God teaches us about who he is and who we are in him. And so when we try to live in this society, we more and more come to the realization that we are called to live upside down to the world we live in. And I think it would be fair to say that you and I, unlike maybe any other generation of American Christians, we live in a time of testing. The world is testing our words against our lives. 
You talk about all these great things. You say that Jesus is the Son of God. You say you believe in the triune God. You say that the grave is empty. You say that you have been transformed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and you are guaranteed an eternity with God, and yet, and yet so many of your leaders live in immorality. How does that make sense? You say that God has all the answers to life, and Jesus solves the issues of interpersonal relationship, but the highest divorce rate in America is inside the church. Now, I'm not going to go into those topics. I'm just saying to you, if you're an unbeliever and you look at the church and you say, well, if that's what you say and that's what you do, then what do you really believe? The world is testing our words against our lives. But secondarily, I think the church is testing God's word against its desires. There's no, no person in the church in America who isn't serious about the inspiration of Scripture and the, and the fact that it is God-breathed, that it is non-negotiable. It is truth that it rises out of the very nature of God, gets expressed into history, and speaks to His people. And therefore, it is inspired. God-breathed. But when they have to deal with people, they invariably hear something like this. I know that's what the Bible says, but I know the Bible says I really shouldn't be engaged, I shouldn't be involved with that guy, but I love him. I know the Bible says I really shouldn't be in a sexual relationship with this other individual because that's not really my husband or my wife, but. I know I really shouldn't do something questionable on my taxes, but I know that my business ought to represent the morality of eternity, but it's amazing how often our belief is being tested, even inside ourselves, against the Word of God. Yeah, I know it's true, but. So therefore, we end up with a whole generation of evangelical Christians who no longer really believe that the Word of God is inspired. If they did, it would have to be the rule of faith and life. If it is the rule of life, faith and life, therefore, it is the boundaries of truth. And everything outside of those boundaries is sin. And everything inside of that boundary is God-given. And then finally, I think God is testing us against what we say and what we do. You confess me. Do you look like me? You follow me. How far do you follow me? You sing beautiful songs. Do you believe them? And so we're, we're in a, a serious moment in this nation of testing. It's a moment that Europe has already failed on, my friends. As one who has lived in Europe and been involved with Europe for more than 20 or 30 years, I can say to you definitively, Christianity as a movement is dead in Europe. In terms of the culture, the church is largely useless. If we talk about the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, having a transformational impact on people and the, church, and, 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 and the culture, it's dead. The largest church that I know of in Europe is in England, and that's less than 
And so we're toying with moments of real difficulty here. Why God is doing something abundantly exciting all over the planet. We're still trying to make our way in the middle of all this. And as I think of words to leave you, to both encourage you as well as challenge you, I can find no better words than the words of Jesus himself. Now, the problem with the words of Jesus is they, they're not obscure. <laughs> they're pretty clear. <laughs> and sometimes it's like, well, you know, why don't you tell me a story? <laughs> Jesus doesn't play those games. But let's take a look at those words. And I know you know these words, and I want to take a look at the, the words that Mark has read because... I have spent a couple of years taking a look at the, at the Sermon on the Mount, and I am profoundly impacted by it. Because I think Jesus outlines the kingdom of God, and it does not look like people thought it would look. In fact, he starts out with what we call the Beatitudes, yeah? The Blesseds. And let me read those blesseds in opposite, because what I want to do is juxtapose. I want to draw a contrast between what the world would say those blesseds are and what Jesus say that says those blesseds are. If I were a non-believer looking at that, here's, I think, what the world would say. Blessed are the wealthy because they possess the earth. They would say blessed are the happy because that's how you really enjoy life. Blessed are the aggressive, because they inherit, inherit the fullness of the earth. Blessed are those who hunger to possess, because if you could possess, you'll never be full. You just keep wanting more, but you'll also never be fully empty. Blessed are the self-righteous, because people who show mercy are weak people. So self-righteous never show mercy. Merciful people don't get ahead. So blessed are the self-righteous. Blessed are the corrupt. Why? Because they don't believe in this nonsense called God. And they take advantage of every little, every little small hole in the system to get what they want. Blessed are those who sow division because they are really the sons of man. You divide and you, <laughs> and you conquer. You don't unify and conquer. You divide and conquer. Blessed are the self-protected, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are you if you are always liked, for that is what worldly relationships are actually for, are they not? To be liked. So you look at those thoughts in an inverse way, and then you come back to Jesus' thoughts, and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, because they recognize their need. They recognize their lostness. They feel pain for this lostness. They realize how far they are away from the creation of God. So blessed are the poor in spirit because they recognize their need. They mourn for this lostness. They're not happy over it. They mourn for the lostness. They're quiet before God. They're meek. They hunger to be made whole. Because righteousness makes one whole. They give mercy because they have received mercy. They have pure motivations because they are now pure in heart. They promote peace because they are peacemakers. 
As a result of all that, they're harassed for being whole, persecuted for righteousness. And finally, they're rejected because of their allegiance to Jesus, persecuted and spoken badly about. And you look at that list from the worldly point of view, you say, what kind of moron would want to be like that? Why would you want to risk wealth and happiness and friendship with this kind of a description? To come into the world realizing that I came imperfectly born into the world because of sin, and only in the righteousness restored by God do I become whole. And God begins to remake that wholeness in me. Who wants that? And so when we live in a world that becomes more and more distorted from that point of view, we live inverse to the world. We're uphill in the world. We're salmons going back uphill, back upstream. And that's what I think makes it difficult for American Christianity to have to walk out of this room where people confess righteousness and live in antagonism and know that you're called to live in a distinctive way in the midst of that antagonism. But that's what Jesus says is blessed. But then you might say, well, you know, why is this so important, Dwight? Why can't just I have my confession? Why can't I simply come, sing, confess, believe, and go to heaven? Because there's three things about these people who are blessed that are so important that the work of God doesn't get done without it. Number one, he says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, there's a lot of things we could say about salt, but one of the things I think most that I think he's referencing here is that salt retains freshness, if I can put it that way. You take fish and you salt it, and it'll be preserved for quite a bit of time. You can eat it quite a bit later. There's a preservation function. There's other things, but I want to key on this one. There's a preservation function in salt. When, when the world looks at us, what they ought to see is antagonism. Antagonism to the spirit they were born into so that there might be hope for the one that they can be born into. What they ought to see is the image of God still alive and well. When Adam and Eve sinned, we theologians say the image of God was marred, but what is not destroyed. If it was destroyed, then we'd just be monkeys or trees or animals. But because that image is not destroyed, there is still the distinction of God. Therefore, there is the dignity of humanity. Take away the image of God and you have no reason to preserve the dignity of humanity. The dignity of humanity is rooted in the supernatural image of the living God. Or it's not worth preserving. And go anywhere in the world you want to go. And people treated like animals are treated by others like animals because they don't believe they have a soul. They don't believe they're really completely human. So as we live in the world that surrounds us, people look at us and in a very small way when we're first Christians and then a, a larger way the longer we've been walking with God and then a much more full way when you have 40 or 50 years and in the Word of God, listening to the Word of God, submitting to the Word of God, allowing the Spirit to speak to you, let God breathe His Word through you and in you and then through you. The longer you've done that, the more people look at you and say, you are a 
Let me use this word. You're a damn oxymoron. You disturb me. Why? Because there is a resilience, a reminder of the image of God that sits in you that antagonizes the flesh that still dominates them. We remind the world that there is a righteous standard. We remind the world that because we are created in the image of God, babies are not discarded. We remind the world that because it all belongs to God and we are stewards, we are willfully sharing these things. We remind the world that though you hate me, I will choose to love you. Because that's what the righteousness of God does. That's what God did for you in Jesus. And Jesus says to you, when you look at your enemy, you embrace him and you pray for him. We are a reminder of the dignity of humanity because of the image of the living of God. We are salt in this world. But there's a little caution here. There's a caveat, yeah? And he warns us, if this salt loses its saltiness, if this reminder, if this distinction, if this righteous quality distinction begins to diminish, if we don't act like salt, he says what happens is it just gets thrown on the ground and it's trampled. He doesn't say that we're not still salt. He doesn't say that we're not still children of God. That's not the metaphor here. The metaphor is that if you are intended to be salt and that's how God wants to use you and you don't do things to maintain that saltiness, then the world will get to a point where you become so irrelevant that they will abuse you. You're thrown on the ground to be trampled. You believe what? Get out of here. What what kind of morons are you? You believe that? I thought we proved that wrong. You're still talking about that nonsense? You're still living that way? Trampled. Why? Because it's not salt anymore. It's useless. So be careful that you don't lose your saltiness. Because you are the salt of the earth. The second thing he says is, you are the light of a world, a light of the world, a city on a hill, a lamp on a lampstand, intended to show the light of God. Now, I think what he means is this, that when you and I live in the way that demonstrates the truth of the gospel, we shine the revelation of the gospel on the hiddenness of evil in the society. Now, the problem with revelation is that revelation has two responses. Oh, no, I didn't realize that. Tell me more. The conviction of the Spirit speaks reconciliation, and people say, I submit to it. Or, when it's uncovered, Paul says, it gets angry. Jesus said, if I had not have uncovered their sin, they wouldn't have hated me. So when we shine the truth of revelation, the light in the world, on that world... Um, there's a revelation of God that comes in righteousness. When that revelation comes, there's conviction. 
But you see, what God intends is that conviction brings hope. So ultimately, our light is meant to be a statement of hope. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Without us, what hope is there? Uh, You want to hope in Social Security? You want to hope in your job? You want to hope in the promises of the government? I don't care, Democratic or Republican. You want to hope in that? You want to hope in your savings? Hmm. Yeah, I stuck mine away. Yeah, want to hope in your house? Yeah, I got a house. (laughs) In one year period. How far did it go down? 15, 20, 25%. How much did we lose on that investment portfolio? 10, 15, 20%? So I think all God is saying is there's nothing wrong with all those things. But that's not where hope is. Hope is in your relationship with the living God because of Jesus Christ. And when that begins to show itself to the world, it reveals something, the truth of God. That revelation brings conviction. That conviction brings healing and hope. You're the light of the world. And then thirdly, and I've taken this to my own context, you're the truth that God wants to speak. Jesus says in the next few verses, says, look, nothing that's written is is going to be ignored. Everything that is written is going to be cleared. All the way down to every little jot and tittle, it'll all be fulfilled. I didn't come to abrogate the law. I came to fulfill the law. But, he says... And he concludes with these words. If your righteousness is not greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of God. So there is a way in which not only we are light, not only, pardon me, not only we are salt, not only where we light, but we're truth. Now the problem is the Pharisees were a truth of some kind, but they were a religious truth. And Jesus says that religious truth is not a muff. So he's not saying to us, you just need more religious truth. You know, you need to go to church more often. You need to give more money. You need to be faithful in your membership. Oh, by by the way, you should go teach a Sunday school class. Do something more righteous, and therefore your righteousness will be better. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, is that your righteousness has to be different than the righteousness of the Pharisee. The righteousness of the Pharisee was external. The righteousness of God is internal. The righteousness of the Pharisee gets dressed like a cloak. The righteousness of God gets built from the inside out. Righteousness becomes a way of decision making. It's not a doctrine. It's a way of life. We choose righteousness because righteousness is the image of God. It's the restoration of Jesus Christ. It's the world that's coming A good friend of ours, his wife just went into eternity at 7.55 on Friday night. She entered into the world of righteousness. Because that's what she was made for. You you were not made for Wilmington 2014. You were made for eternity and righteousness. Your time here in, in Wilmington or wherever you are in America is for three reasons. Salt, light, truth. What God wants to say to the world, he says through you. Or, he doesn't say it. Or, 
he finds another way to get it said by somebody he brings from somewhere else. America, 2014. Culture, 2014. Christianity, 2014. I do a lot of work with young men in America as well as around the world. Several hundred young men, several thousand churches that have gone through the stuff that I have created and do training in. And when I think about that, that world, I become dismayed. When I hear about the six largest churches in America, all six whom in six months, the six pastors fall in immorality, and one is so embarrassed he shoots himself. 70,000 church members in evangelical Protestant Bible-believing churches who've now been taught that their pastor was a liar. He was living a lie. Teaching the truth, living a lie. What are those 70,000 people going to do with their faith? I know too much about what's going on in America. And so it's easy to look at that and say, well, is God over? Is he done? Is his full revelation done for America? And you and I are just going to be little ships in the darkness waiting for eternity? Or is he saying to us, now is the moment to strike of the reality that you possess? I look at those words, you are the salt of the earth. And I say to the young men, young 40s, I say to the young men I work with, women and men and women I work with, I say, look, I refuse to be a generation of Christianity trampled on. Who wants to join me? Who is not willing to accept the fact that we will become so irrelevant that we will be disregarded? Now, I don't care that they disagree, and I don't care that they persecute, but I refuse to be disregarded because I am a child of the, of the living God. I'm a child of King Jesus. I'm here for a reason, and when that reason's over, I'm in eternity. Until that day, I am so strategic to his plan that I remind the world of his image, I declare his hope, and I live his truth. Who wants to join me? How many are willing to recapture the moment and say, no, it doesn't matter what America does politically. It doesn't matter what it does economically. It doesn't matter what it does socially. We will not be the last relevant generation. And you will not disregard Christ, even if you hate me. What about you? What more does God want to do in Wilmington? that you are his primary plan for. You're his salt, you're his light, you're his truth. And he wants you to rise up and take possession of that inheritance until you breathe your last. Father, we are thankful for these bold words of Jesus. They speak so clearly to us. We understand that in this world you have turned us upside down from this world. When we first came into that kingdom, we were just neophytes. We were brand new. We were so newborn, we weren't even sure what it all meant. But many of us now have carried 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 years of walking with you. And Father, you are saying to us, you are my instrument. You are my reminder. You are my spoken hope. You are the incarnation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're the proof that the grave is empty. 
And Father, you are, you're saying to us, we are your incarnated truth. People look at us, and even though we are not perfect, we are becoming righteousness, even as we submit to the Spirit and to the truth. Give us wisdom to understand how important it is. Don't let us be deluded. Don't let the Internet and MTV and television and sports and and even job or family or marriage, don't let these things to delude us into missing this moment of significant eternal transaction. When you want to use common clay to be your extraordinary manifestations. I pray for these people. I pray for this church. That whatever you want to say through all of their relationships and you want to say in this city through this church, they will be willing willing colleagues to that. They've, they've, they've been deluded. They'll go home and, re, and be reminded that they have been deluded. If they've been lazy, they'll go home and be reminded that they have been lazy. But that, Father, we will not be a generation trampled under by the feet of disbelieving pagan men. That the light of the gospel will live through our lives. May you make this church that kind of collection. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.